Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. So good to have you here. I'm looking at the number of people that are dialed in, most likely from where you're enjoying your vacation and listening to the podcast. That amazes me. Dialed in on Memorial Day. Well, happy Memorial Day all of you, no matter where you may be and what you are doing. I hope you are enjoying your Memorial Day holiday. I want to say a special thank you to the veterans who have served our nation's our nation. Uh, so well in over the years, and whether it be recent conflicts or conflicts going way back. Now, you can argue, say, well, some conflicts we should have been in. Hey, listen, folks, this is about remembering those and and setting aside a day to honor those that went. You know, we can have policies. Should we have been involved in this war? Should we not have been involved in it? Should we be, should we be as far-reaching out in the world? I mean, that's what's being debated in in this election season, uh, but we need a strong military. And when they say to the veterans, go, they've gone. And in many cases, they have paid the ultimate sacrifice. We're grateful to the veterans that have served our nation. We're grateful to the families that have sent them. And our hearts go out to, and our thoughts and prayers go out to the veterans' families that paid the ultimate sacrifice when their loved one gave their life, gave the all, the ultimate gift to us and that for our freedom we do not take it for granted the fact that i can do this podcast on this holiday and do it each and every week at this time is a testimony to the those that gave their lives for our nation and for the freedoms we enjoy appreciate them and happy memorial day to everyone and let's not forget our veterans I want to say a special thank you to all of our sponsors that are out there. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals, and we are the proud recipient of the Innovation Award by Progress in Lending. Uh, ArchMI is one of our sponsors, very grateful for them, and very interested, and we're talking more about the innovative RateStar program, a product that they have. Hey, uh, you can get that on almost every device, and I'm, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Got a segment with Jim Jump coming up in just a minute. We also have Motivity Solutions as a partner and a sponsor of the radio program. They are the industry's leading business intelligence technology in the nation, providing real-time reporting as well as dashboards and scorecards. Velma. By the way, we're going to have the KPI of the week here in just a little bit as well. John Mayneal from Motivity Solutions. Velma does a great job of getting the word out about our uh, podcast, and uh, they're taking the day off. And again, to all of our sponsors, hope you're enjoying your Memorial Day. Special thank you to Velma, to Brent Emler and the team there to get the word out about our program and uh, to many of the thousands that have signed up to receive notifications. Also, you can sign up by going to the website, clicking on uh, the link there. And if you're not, just send me an email, and I'll make sure you get added to the list. Send it to david at tms-advisors.com. Look forward to hearing from you and getting you added to the list. And we'll, you'll get the responses that are sent out by Velma, Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. If you're looking for a set-it-and-forget-it auto campaign, they do a great job at that, as well as creating really custom campaigns on the fly. Check out Velma at velma.com. 
the nation's easiest and most affordable marketing platform. A special thank you goes out to Simplify, another one of our sponsors. We're so pleased with them. They're in this post-trid world, the timing is of the essence, and waiting for the email dialogue back and forth, and the closing agents is just not acceptable. They have many products and services, but Nancy Alley was on the program here, and we're looking forward to getting her back on here, hopefully soon, uh, to talk about the collaborative way in which they work with settlement agents in a real-time chatting and messaging format. You can track and receive validation of documents when transmitting documents. You can also share changes and um, just in a real-time back-and-forth electronic communication. How can anyone communicate in this world, post-trade world, without a service such as Simplifile? Check them out at Simplifile.com, S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I-L-E.com, or call them at 1-800-460-5657. Also, thank you goes out to D&H. Of course, they are just uh, really pleased with our partnership and relationship with D&H. They do a great job in their mortgage technology. They are a company that is providing really uh, some of the most innovative products. Uh, we had uh, them on talking about the the, um, the barometer product that's coming up that really allows you to assess the level of expertise within, for example, your underwriting area. You can also apply that to other areas. So back, be sure to go back and listen to the podcast here a few weeks ago or a month ago um, or so ago, I can't remember that. I should have that date written down. But they had a, they did a great job talking about the barometer product. And they also have MortgageBot, a number of other products that I want to encourage you to uh, check out. If you're looking at making a change in your LOS provider, D&H should they be at the top of your list, especially the MortgageBot products. They're a great group of people, and uh, they serve a large audience in all over the nation, and all over our country, as well as uh, other countries as well. Uh, I want to say special thank you to the NBA and the conferences they put up. Uh, the chairman's conference is coming up this uh, the next week. Is it? It's not the coming week, but the following week. It's in the Breakers uh, in Palm Beach. It's a great conference. I know you'll want to take advantage of that. If you haven't been to one of the chairman's conferences, it is. Um, it's one that I really encourage you to check out. Uh, let's see here. You can also learn more about all the conferences at the NBA Conferences and Education. Uh, Google that, and uh, it'll up, all, all the NBA conferences will come up. Also, while you're there, join Mortgage Action Alliance. Let's go over to the uh, market update. Joe Farr is taking the day off, so I'm going to cover that today and get in and just look at what's uh, there. Last week, of course, today is Memorial Day, so there's nothing, no activity today. Last week was uh, – it was – it. They ended up unchanged, but it was better outcome than we could have expected. The housing data came in way better than expected. And you look at the home sales, they rose 17% in April from March. The rest of the, um, the and it's the best level they've been at since 2000, January 2008. Then on Thursday, pending home sales came out, rose 5% from March. It's the best levels they've been at since February of 2006, the great Pre, uh, the, the great recession that we had. And so good to see those numbers coming in so strong. Now, if you look at the uh, the previous week, we also had uh, the, the the existing home sales numbers, and those came in, uh, as you recall, on Friday, those came in really uh, above expectations. So it's looking like home sales are looking real good. We're pleased to see the growth there. That bodes well for the mortgage industry. Demand continues to remain strong, and that's even in spite of the Federal Reserve talking about raising interest rates as they did last week. Now, when you look at uh, what also that went on last week, uh, 
it wasn't bad data overall. Jobless claims were at 268,000. The April durable goods orders were up in a big way. They mostly due to the civilian airline or airplane orders. Uh, the airline industry is expanding, and uh, we got some new airplanes being ordered. That helped that. Now, when you look at extent, uh, you know, non-transportation numbers, it's still up 0.4 percent. So there's some growth there in the durable goods. Glad to see that. First quarter GDP, second estimate was revised upward to 0.8% from the first estimate of 0.5%. Glad to see that there's some growth there in the GDP. That's probably one of the reasons why the Fed has started talking about raising uh, interest rates. And then you look at the uh, consumer sentiment number. Unfortunately, that fell, but it's still up nicely from April's number. This week, we have uh, the course PCE number on Tuesday. We also have consumer confidence number coming out. Be interested to see how that contrasts with the consumer sentiment number on Friday. Also construction spending. Wednesday we have the ADP uh, payroll report. That's the number of new paychecks being issued as well as the Institute of Supply Manager index coming out. The Fed Beige Book. Jobless claims will be on Thursday and then the jobless report on Friday along with the IMS service. ISM services index. So then we have uh, several more Fed speakers speaking throughout the week. Always pay attention to what mixed signals they send us. So uh, we'll see how that all goes. But anyway, Joe Farr, hope you're having a great Memorial Day. Uh, we're going to be right back after this brief break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteland delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin. Well, normally we'd be going out to Paul Malo, then Alice Alvey, and then around the horn to Andy Shell, the Profit Doctors, others, uh, as well as Sam Garcia. But uh, we're they're all taking, enjoying the holiday. I am the one that's sitting here behind the switchboard and the microphone, so you've got me today, folks. And I'm excited to talk about several things. One of the things I put up on the website was three keys to success, understanding why some companies succeed and others fail. I've been consulting for the last 15 years, and I look at in amazement sometimes why some companies do succeed and why some fail. And we're going to be talking about that today in the podcast. And that's really the focus of what we're going to visit on. But again, I want to say a special thank you to our veterans. I, I just can't get past that. I, I'm, I think we in America have a tendency to just gloss over some of these holidays and the purpose of these holidays. Uh, having had a dad that served in the service and, and then knowing so many of our clients and friends that have served and, and honorably, you look at, you, know, you say, well, not all wars are honorably, but let's not confuse the two. I hear that a lot. It's really interesting to see how divided our nation is. It's never been more evident than what's going on in this election. You take a look at our two candidates. You look at what the primary season we went through, and yeah, there's just absolutely a lot of frustration it's represented out there in the in, and there's a lot of change desired. So I expect we're going to see some change. Some of the change we're hoping it will be for the better. So um, we're going, I'm going to stay out of politics. would like to go over there a little bit, but maybe we will as we get closer into the election. Um, 
when you look at the three areas that make for a company, it's really uh, the people, the process, and the product. And I know this is um, on the Shark Tank they have that, and also the profit, uh, the gentleman that does that on CNBC, his name is escaping right now. He talks about the three uh, aspects of what really makes up a business, the people, the process, and the product. And I've been consulting over the last 15 years in an industry that I've been in for 43 years. And I've come to recognize three primary characteristics that, when done right, result in extraordinary success. And when done wrong, result in failure. And sometimes some amazing failure. And I'm oftentimes amazed at the number of companies that who succeeds because you look at them, you go, ah, I'm not sure if they're going to be successful. Then you look at some companies that you just are convinced are, going to, are destined for success. You look at them, you go, they failed. But what is the reason for their failure? When you look at the, the, the rationale that goes into it, oftentimes a failure having to do with people, processes, and products. Now, we're going to be spending some time talking about that. And I'm going to go into three strategies that I believe, and I'm talking about, I spoke about this at the Ohio Mortgage Bankers uh, session. I was one of the keynote speakers, and it was an honor to be there. I'm also the keynotes, one of the keynote speakers at the New York MBA or Mortgage Bankers Association in Albany that's coming up here. I'm speaking on the 9th and the 10th, June 9th and 10th. I'm actually speaking on Friday in the morning of the Friday the 10th. And we're going to want to get into some of the things that I'm covering. We don't have time because of the short amount of time on the podcast here, but I want to talk about three strategies of success that are out there that I have used. And we're going to start off by really getting in and how are you analyzing your company? There's this thing that's been around for years. I mean, if you've been to business school, you've heard of something called the SWOT analysis. It stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threat. And they're usually put in, in a grid, and, um, and strengths and weaknesses are side-by-side side in the upper part of a grid, and opportunities and threats are in the lower part. So strength is, the, is on the left side, and weaknesses on the upper right-hand corner. Opportunities on the bottom lower right hand left hand corner and threats are on the bottom right hand corner. So when you look at this, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Now everything on the above the line, on the strengths and weaknesses, those are related to internal aspects of your business. If you're doing a SWOT analysis on yourself, it's looking at your own strengths and weaknesses. If you're looking at your business, you're looking at your own business's strengths and weaknesses. And then you look at an industry, you can say the industry's strengths and weaknesses. Then the southern hemisphere of this uh, four-box grid that we have looking at is opportunities and threats. Now, if you look at those are external. Those are things that are outside of you. Those are things for example, if you're doing a SWOT analysis on yourself, an external circumstance would be um, a car accident. You're unanticipated that, uh, a death of a loved one, a divorce, a sickness, or some external event. Uh, some would say your own health could be outside that. Well, it may be outside your uh, – it's within your control, but it's outside of your awareness. So it's those things, those opportunities, and what gets us most of the time are the threats, the external threats that can come out there. Now, another way to look at this is to look at this same four-box grid, strength in the upper left-hand corner, weakness in the upper right-hand corner, the opportunities in the lower left-hand corner, and threats in the lower right-hand corner. If you look at that, the left side of the grid, or the the you might say the western side of that grid, is um, – is strengths and opportunities. Those are the positive aspects of a SWOT analysis. And weakness and threats are on the right-hand side. And, again, those are the things that are more the negative side. So when you look at this SWOT and put it in this four 
box grid, you start looking at how a, a company is. I'm getting some text messages in from some people asking me to elaborate on this. I'm going to. So I'll, I'll be on it. By the way, I'm impressed that you guys are dialed in and listening to this podcast on a holiday. Appreciate it. So many faithful listeners that are here and listening to this podcast blows me away. So anyway, when you start looking at the pattern, so when most people start looking at a pattern of how they look at things, we oftentimes start with our strengths. We're doing it on our own selves. We're looking at our own business. So, so you can list out your strengths. You know, you don't have to elaborate a lot. Everyone knows what a strength is, and it's those areas that are strongest about your company or about yourself. And then you go over to the right-hand side is the weaknesses. Most of us have a – some depends on how you're wired. Some of us have a better understanding of our weaknesses than we do of our strengths. Some people, it's amazing how they struggle, and that's revealing in and of itself. When you start struggling to look at your strengths, that means the weaknesses are so overwhelming or so much more visible to you. You need to get some outside help to come in and look at your strengths. Now, there's the, the flip-flop of that. The flip of that is there's so many people who go, I'm strong at this. I got this down. I got this. But when they start writing out their weaknesses, you can start seeing that the pencil or the pen does not move or the computer, whichever you're using, does not move as quickly as it does when you're uh, working on your on your other side, on the, on the strength side. So, it's oftentimes we need outside help when it comes to recognizing our own strengths and our weaknesses. And I, we have our own biases. We think we're this. I mean, there's, I think a lot of things about myself, but it's really my friends, my family, those that are closest to me, and oftentimes the clients that come back and say, Dave, you're really strong in this. And I'll go, wow, I didn't realize that. Or you could use some strengthening in this area. You're not as strong. Your weakness here is in, in this area. So we need to have an accurate assessment of what those are. So I oftentimes go encourage every business owner that I work with, I work mostly with C-level executives, presidents and owners of businesses and their executive management teams, I often ask them to do a SWOT analysis. So we start, number one, with doing a SWOT analysis of themselves. If you need a form to work with, I've got one. You can find them online, but um, I have one that I encourage you to use. Um, And so when you look through it, we, you create your own list, and then I encourage you to hand that form out to your spouse and find out what they would say as your greatest strengths and your weaknesses and circulate it amongst your family, those, your inner circle, those that know you the best. Now, you say, well, is that really appropriate because there is a personal side of us and a professional side of us? Well, I think if we're really living and doing our business correctly, there should not be a great difference between our personal preference, personal and our uh, professional side. I mean, at least the basic characteristics of how we run our business, how we run our lives, should remain basically the same. So we should see those same strengths and weaknesses. Now, obviously, a spouse may is going to call attention to specific things that are related to your personal life. That's not what we're looking in this particular case. That's, I think you should get that. I think every marriage should go through this. My wife and I do this. I have two daughters and a wife. I get SWOT analysis done on me on a regular basis, and uh, I was uh, stiff next toward that. I didn't particularly like it so much, but I tell you, I have come to embrace that. And I think your uh, your strengths, yeah, you got to know those, and you're going to help. Uh, people will help you see strengths that you may not recognize that you have. That's important. More importantly, they're going to help you see those weaknesses. Now, really, when you start looking at the opportunities and threats, that's a part of the analysis that is, again, external to yourself or external to your company. That is enough. There are many in the industry who are very well read. They study the industry. They get lots of counsel. Uh, These are people that have a tendency to retain consultants like myself to come in, and they – 
they have they're always looking at this they're doing another term for this analysis is a 360 analysis a 360 analysis has a slightly different approach to it a SWOT is really zeroed in and I try to get every one of the executives I work with to do a SWOT analysis so by the way, I was talking about strengths and weaknesses and how to and who to go out to. You should go out to your executive team and your direct reports. Uh, the executive the executives that I work with that go out to their direct reports, even some that they know don't particularly care for them, you get the most honest assessment. Now, what's really interesting about this is I was challenged, Dave. I want you to find five people that you think do not like you, that you would guess really don't particularly care for your style. And they're cordial to you, but they're not, you're not the first on their list that they're going to call to go have a drink with after work or spend some time socializing. So I put those out there to them, and uh, I was surprised that some of them said, I'm, I explained what I was challenged to do, and they go, Dave, I don't, I don't dislike you, but I'm happy to do that. I mean, we do have some differences, and, yeah, I can see that. So they willingly took that. Now, what's amazing is when I was willing to be transparent, when I was willing to go out to them and talk to them and say and become vulnerable, this is a key word, vulnerability. If a good leader is willing to be vulnerable, we don't oftentimes want to hear the things that we need to fix, our weaknesses. But if you're going to be an effective leader, and especially in this market, you have got to know your weaknesses. You've got to know your strengths, but more importantly, you've got to know your weaknesses. And those, they're going to come back. What's most interesting about those five people, and I had to search a little bit to get some out there, had a couple that said, no, I'm not interested in participating in that. I guess those were the ones that probably really didn't like me. But the ones that did accept and took this on, I asked them to do it. And I said, by the way, I only need 10 minutes. I really don't really need much of your time to do this because I want what's on top of mine. We oftentimes start digging into things, and yes, and they, and they a lot of them came back with some additional things. I kept the door open for that, but I really asked, can you, will you be willing to give me 10 minutes of your time? And um, if there's another way to do this also when you have your peers, uh, your, your direct reports and your peers, they can turn it into a neutral party. Oftentimes, as a consultant when I'm doing this, I'll have the executives turn this in to me, where they will give me their SWOT analysis and that were done by others. And then I analyze them, I sanitize it so that the executive doesn't uh, know exactly, exactly who put that, put that out there. I don't know who it is. I ask them not to put their names on it. So I don't read into it, but then I look at it. And now everyone's trying to guess in that environment. I like full transparency. I think it should go both ways. So I open. I encourage people to do that where everybody knows what's being said. And I think that's the best way to go about it. But I understand some are hesitant to do so, and they want honest. When they really get what the benefits are of a SWOT analysis, they're concerned that, that those are, uh, that are direct reports are not going to be as transparent and real. So uh, the most valuable people are those that are the best mirror for you, that give you the most honest feedback. But I can understand the concern, so that's why I'll oftentimes, when I'm consulting the situation, have them turn it into me. I'll consolidate them, look for the themes, and then I'll, I'll present it back to the executive. I'll also, by the way, publish it back out for everybody to see so they can see it. And then I think that kind of transparency, if that, again, is if the executive wants that. So let's go on down to the opportunities and threats. I started going down there. When you look at opportunities, these are the opportunities in the industry. For example, we saw, we reported earlier in the podcast about housing numbers, how there's been growth in home sales. We're looking at existing home sales. Two Fridays ago was um, a week ago this last Friday, came out very strong. Then we saw, as we reported in there, the new home sales rose 17%. Uh, that was uh, what day? That was on Monday. And then we also saw last Thursday the um, pending home sales rose 5%. 
on Thursday. So we're seeing some growth in the housing market, and that is in spite of some of the things going on. There's a lot of people analyzing why that is, but we are seeing some demand and growth in, and the most encouraging one, of course, was the pending home sales number. So that is a real opportunity. There's an opportunity because of the growth in the market. Does that mean millennials are coming into the market, beginning to come in? There's more evidence that we're starting to see a trickle of the millennials that are actually getting jobs, getting decent jobs, or or got their student loan debt managed to the point where they can come in and actually acquire a home. So the then let's go to the threats. The threat to the industry, of course, some would say that one of the number one threats to our industry is overregulation. I would have the tendency to agree with that. No question. Overregulation could be a real threat. It's a, it's a threat. So you might say, well, don't get that, but it's legal. Litigation. Well, litigation comes from a lack of compliance. So how compliant are you? Uh, that may be a weakness, but then also it drops down to if you're weak in that area, there is a bigger threat of you being audited and paying penalties or this thing called the plaintiff bar. I talk about it a lot when I'm at these conferences speaking. The plaintiff bar is alive and well. That's the part of the bar that sues whatever industry they're focusing on. I walked. I was going through a hotel, and uh, I stumbled across a plaintiff bar seminar that was going on about our industry. It floored me that there was actually a seminar being given on how to sue mortgage lenders. I wanted to stay there, but I'm high-profile enough. Someone spotted me, and uh, I was uh, encouraged to leave the room. And so I walked in and stood in the back of the room, and it was uh, just really interesting. So that is a real threat. Lawsuits are real threats. The regulation is a threat that creates the lawsuits, the atmosphere or the opportunity for the lawsuits. So you look at what's out there in the threats. We need to do a thorough, honest analysis, and that's what we try to do in this podcast. One of the reasons we do this podcast is to look at the opportunities and the threats that are out there, and I'm going to talk briefly on what I believe the strengths and weaknesses are of the industry. I'm going to give you an example of a SWOT analysis and some of the benefits in just a minute. But I want you to get used to or open to the idea of doing a SWOT analysis on your company. Start with you doing one on yourself. Next, dear, if you look at your inner circle, though yourself, then what's the most inner circle? For most of us, it's our family and uh, the, our relatives. Those are closest to us. Uh, some cases, our executive team that we have reporting to us or that we're working with or working in an executive team is probably also as, as close to being that inner circle. They, we, you certainly spend more time with the executive team and the executives that with you work with than oftentimes your direct family. But, you know, go out to your parents if they're still alive. In my case, they're both my, my mom's around, and I've gone out and asked her uh, different things. I've gone and spent a weekend recently with my brother. We got into a real healthy analysis of our strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, looking at it over from a generational standpoint, what was passed down to us, some attitudes that we have, ideas, ideas we have, some mindsets. It's really interesting. So anyway, get the inner circle there, then go out beyond that, and then start going out to your company. Uh, one of the most impressive executives that's having outrageous success is he went out to his entire company and had them all fill back doing a, a leadership, uh, in this case, it was a leadership SWOT analysis. How do I look as a leader? Please tell me what you see as my weaknesses, what my strengths are, where are the opportunities where I can improve, and what are the threats as if I don't do a better job? And it was really amazing. So this particular leader, and he's, I, I don't want to call him out because I didn't get his permission to use his name, but I was very impressed with the fact that he did it, and it was really insightful for him. Now, it was it was confirming in many ways, but insightful in some other ways. He made some major adjustments on how he managed the company when they did a leadership SWOT analysis of him. 
So let's go with, give you an example of this. I want to go through and give you um, one other thing. If you were going to do a SWOT analysis of our industry, you would do it something like this. The strengths are it's here to stay. We represent 15 to 18% of the GDP. The strength is liquidity and reasonable loan programs are very much a strength. We have good liquidity in the industry, lots of warehouse financing. We have the agencies still there. Granted, the well, we'll talk about the Federal Reserve in just a minute. That's a weakness. Uh, but the liquidity is there and reasonable loan programs. A strong buyer demand. We're seeing evidence of these latest numbers. So that's just three bullets. We could go on and on. Some of the weaknesses that are there in presence is home sales contracting. We're starting to see, well, that was a weakness. We're actually starting to see those starting to grow. That was a weakness from an earlier slide. I got to update that. Relying upon Federal Reserve and the government. That's probably one of the weaknesses. When you look at the Federal Reserve's monetary policy, and do you know that they buy 80%, I believe it's 80% of the, I have to check with uh, Les Parker on this, good friend who keeps me up to date on this, but I believe it's 80% of all of mortgage debt is bought by the Federal Reserve. If they were to back off and providing liquidity and buying the mortgage-backed securities, we would be in a world of hurt. Liquidity would be drying up. If you look at government programs, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, Jenny Mae, all these programs that are there that really foster home ownership. I was listening to Stossel talk on his program uh, on Saturday. Really interesting. I really like uh, Stossel, a good libertarian, and he was really ranking on the housing market and the mortgage industry because we were so reliant on government programs. Uh, he had two guests on there. I would take exception to some of the things they said. Yes, we do have a reliance on the federal government, but it's a system that has been working fairly well for a period of time, for a number of years, decades, as a matter of fact, four to six decades. You know, when you look at the weak inventory of homes, that's a weakness for our industry. And then so let's look at the, the growth opportunities in our industry, or the opportunities. It's the growth of the millennials. New technology is another opportunity. Non-agency liquidity is one that we're starting to see more activity in. That is an area of opportunity, and that's not agency liquidity. We badly need it. It's in the embryonic stage, but it's still there. Now, when you look at threats, you look at the job and wage growth, then, and plus of appreciation, we're not seeing as strong job growth as we'd like to see. Wage growth, we're going to have that number coming up this week, so we'll see where that's at. Home price appreciation has actually been really strong. That is a threat. When you have too strong price appreciation, it blocks out or uh, keeps the millennials from being able to come into the market and buy, and home affordability becomes the issue. Rapid and frequent regulatory change, that's another threat I really see that's out there. Again, we're doing a SWOT analysis on the mortgage and housing industry. So then the last one I'll say under the threat side is continued regulatory growth. If we continue to see regulations continue to grow like this, I think it does represent a threat because it's not that the credit box is 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 pretty much back to where it was when I started in the industry in 1973. But when you look at the, what's keeping people from operating within the credit box is the fear of litigation, and that really comes in as a result of continued regulatory change or growth. Those are issues that are a threat. So it gives you a little bit of an example. I'm talking, you could, I can talk for hours and hours about SWOT analysis. I come in and do this on behalf of companies, and it's really important. You know, look at what hasn't changed in the industry. You know, what has not changed is the relationship. It is still a relationship-driven business. It hasn't. What hasn't changed is it's regulated. We've been regulated for years. Now we say CFPB came in. It's gotten a lot worse. Yeah, I got it. But we've been regulated. It really hasn't changed that much. It's just 
bunch more new regulation that's in there. Heavily reliant on technology. Boy, if this has not been true and it continues to be true, we're still a process-driven business. We're going to talk more about that here in another segment in just a little bit, as well as the secondary markets and the Federal Reserve based liquidity that has not changed don't anticipate that change but what is or what has and is changing is how we establish our building we build relationships we're going to talk more about that as one of the third strategy a little bit uh, it's talking about the mobile revolution the rate of change of the regular of regulations is probably what is changing we're having the same regulatory environment but the rate of change is really challenging companies and technology vendors tremendously there needs to be more focus on process, and we're going to talk about that as the second strategy in just a minute. We're starting to see some peer-to-peer lending and crowdfunding. It's a very interesting area. I studied that, and uh, I see probably more hope for that to continue to grow. Again, it's in the embryonic phase, but that is what is out there as far as what's changing. When you look at the uh, – well, that pretty much sums up the, what, what's the analysis of the SWAT. So I encourage you to do a SWAT. This may be a good time to take a quick break here. And uh, let's run out to uh, uh, ArchMI and uh, talk with Jim Jump for a minute about uh, the Innovative RateStar program. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on, and we're happy to be a proud sponsor of the program. And today I'd like again to talk about RateStar from Arch Mortgage Insurance. RateStar is a revolutionary tool that allows mortgage originators to dynamically price mortgage insurance and match coverage to ArchMI's most competitive rates. And that's important because it allows you to compete more effectively, qualify more borrowers, and of course close more loans. That's the power of RateStar. Originators from around the country are letting us know just how quick and easy RateStar is to use. And all you need is your NMLS number, and you can access RateStar anywhere, anytime, using multiple points of entry, including most LOS systems, product and pricing engines, and through our websites at archmi.com and archmicu.com for credit unions. And of course, it's available through our mobile app for smartphones and tablets. RateStar makes it easy to choose what type of mortgage insurance coverage your loan needs. You just touch, tap, and go. Quotes are delivered in seconds and represent our most competitive ArchMI rates based on the strength and quality of the loan application. And I have to tell you, David, getting a mortgage insurance quote has never been so powerful or so simple. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you and say thanks. Have a great day, everybody. Yeah, thanks, Jim. And it's really interesting when you look at technology, mobile technology, and we're going to be talking about that in the third segment of the three strategies that are really uh, something you need to be paying attention to. Leading companies are going to these mobile apps. ArchMI has done a great job of creating the Raystar product and program. Check it out. I'm amazed at the difference and how much you can save your customers. I've been at I was at a conference, I've talked about this recently, and several of the reps brought this up, and I said, show me the, show me the benefit. I want to see it. Uh, Missouri. I used to travel through Missouri enough, so if you're in Missouri, you call it Missouri. Show me state. So I had them show me, and it was absolutely the case. It was really pretty amazing. So check out Ratestar. It's good to be with you folks, and we're going to talk about the second strategy that is becoming really critical for companies to be successful. When I look at companies, and as a consultant, again, I have the privilege of traveling across the United States. I have a privilege of working with some of the most successful companies, some of which I helped get started in the business. I mean, they called me. I had the privilege of walking them through literally the incorporation papers and walk them through that. And um, I could use mention many names that are out there. I don't know how many companies it has been I've been involved in, literally the, the, the starting phase, the startup phase. 
and then walk him through various phases of their growth. But one of the things that is the common denominator amongst all of them that have done outrageously well is they focus on operational efficiencies. And when we come in and consult on this area, when I come in and consult on this area, I have a team of me, Brenda, Clem, and myself, and others are come in and work with me. Um, we go through a free three-phase process. Alice Alvey has joined me in this. David uh, Lord has helped me do some of this stuff. Three-phase process. First of all, phase one of becoming operationally efficient is reviewing all of your existing procedures from end to end. It's amazing when you start looking at what you think your staff is doing what it reveals. So start with number one, review all your existing procedures. Second, create or bring current your existing workflow process map. Now, many don't even know what a Visio workflow chart is or a BPM, which is business process mapping. Uh, you know, that's something we use extensively. Many people don't even know what that is. And I'll help you through that. But you should have a workflow map. And if, I, if this wasn't radio, I'd be able to show you on the screen what some of this looks like. In fact, I'll upload some. If you go back and listen to this on a downloaded basis, you'll see some of the pictures that roll across the, um, the website for this particular podcast. So I'll show you what some of those look like. But each department, the third step is each department meets to review current workflow. In other words, mapping out Find out exactly where you're at. This is the starting point of where you need to change. You, I often say this on this podcast. You, don't, you can't get to where you want to go if you don't know where you're at. If you don't know where your processes are at right now, how can you map a course to where you want to go? Well, say I'll start walking towards that. Well, you may be surprised at how long that can take, and you can walk in circles. It talks about you know how many people say they get lost in the woods and they walk in circles and find out after walking for days they get right back to where they were. I'm not sure what it is in the human nature, but we have a tendency to walk in circles unless we establish exactly where we're at and we have some type of mechanism by which we know where we want to go. So I refer to it as putting a stake in the ground. We first of all identify by mapping out the process of meeting with our entire staff. We find out and we review our current workflow. Then here's the, most, the fourth thing that phase one is about. It's identifying inconsistencies and variations and discussing why they exist. We had Keith... Um, Pulaski on the radio podcast here uh, a few weeks ago. I can't get, I gotta get these dates written down. But if you go back and search for the Keith Pulaski's program, he, we came in and did this for him. Alice and I and David Lord did this uh, three-stage process for them at Radius Financial Group. It's a big eye-opening process. And Keith's one of the guys who says, I hate individual separate manufacturing processes. We're supposed to do things consistently the same way all the time. And it just really frustrates me when we see inconsistencies across the process way it's being done. And that's what is a result of people say, I know you want it done that way, but I find it more efficient to do it this way. And this by having step three is getting the department to gather and review your current workflow processes, it really casts a light, shines a light on what those should be. So then you identify what are the reasons for the inconsistencies or the variations or why is it someone has gone outside of an existing process? Is it because the process you stated is inefficient? Is there a better way to do it? And that really comes out of this four steps. So that's a phase one, review existing processes. Two is create a current workflow um, map Process BPM or business process workflow map on what you have, then take a look at each department's um, you know 
that and meet and talk about what your current flow is, identify the inconsistencies and why they exist. That's your fourth step on phase one. Second, phase two. This is what um, we want to go in and start analyzing. What are the time frames you set as goals of when you want to close a loan? What are the time frames? I want to close all my loans or at least set a standard that the best practice for our company is we're going to close loans within so many days. Well, when you look at the processes, now that you have them mapped out in your current workflow processes, you can begin to set those goals, but then you start listing out what keeps your staff from achieving those time frames. So step one is list out time frames. These are your goals. These are the prime. We're going to get loans funded closed within this certain time frame. The second thing then is you list out what keeps your staff from achieving those time frames. The third thing is you negotiate service level promises. that you've heard, Many people have heard of SLAs. Service level agreements. That's where someone is in an agreement and are, is doing a uh, you know a, a process, and they agree to do it within certain standards. And so I like to go service level promises. This is something we came up with when we we're working with Keith Pulaski up at Radius Financial. He said, Dave, I don't want it just to be an agreement. I want it to be a promise. I want my Loan originators promise me they're going to turn in an application that looks at that it meets these standards, and I want my processors to guarantee me that they're going to turn in to underwriting files that look this complete. And underwriters are going to agree to get back and promise to get back files when they look like in, in in this time frame and with these number of conditions and that type of thing. So it's really studying and being very purposeful. You'll spend the most amount of time in phase two because this is where you start working it out. Then finally, after the step four, is you will begin to map out the processes in it to achieve the SLPs, the service level promises. And that's where it becomes much more iterative. Now, it's a really important step here. One key is this when you're doing this is tell people you're going to be held accountable. If you're sitting here silent in these meetings as we work through this, that could have worked. And there's some people, I don't know what you do, what you, you just can't get them to open up and talk. So what you do is you try to get them to a place where they will and create an environment where they will. And the third thing then is you just go, well, if they're not, you just say, you will be signing this process and you will be held accountable. And to have a successful journey and to stay employed here, you're going to agree to do these, this, our processes the way we're going to. There was no going to be inconsistencies and variations. Now, you can decide on a level of, in, uh, of variation. You can have agreed upon variation. This is most common when you look at underwriting. Underwriters, like for example, when I always looked at the underwriter file, I always went to the appraisal first, looked at that, loved the pictures, looked at what I'm dealing with. It's from a collateral standpoint, then I had a tendency to go look at the person, their income, their job, and whatever. So there's underwriting may have different places you can go, and you're going to have agreed upon variations, but it's not going to be. It's going to be understood that there's going to be boundaries in which everyone operates on. Then you map that out. You map out the SLPs and how you're going to achieve it. That's phase two. Phase three is you're going to rewrite your procedures step by step to reflect your SLPs, your service level promises. The second step is you're going to create a new workflow process map using, I use Lucid charts. You can use Visio. Uh, there's a number of, however you choose to do it. I've seen people do it in Excel. It's not as effective, but it works. You could get it done. But you're going to want to map out boxes, and each step, each process needs to be mapped out. Now, we do some quite a few things around that, that that adds to it. I don't have time to get into it. I'll be happy to get into that if you want to give me a call. The embedding the um, written processes into these is one of the keys, as well as how to train people. That That's one of the processes I want to talk about is, 
uh, just don't have time to get into it, but it's really making sure that everyone understands what's there. I've seen people embed their written procedures in each box as it relates to that box. The fourth thing as it relates to phase three that is most critical is you be purposed in that you meet and how you run your business. By that, I mean you meet monthly to review exactly how you're executing, how many loans. This is where motivity comes in as a, such a huge tool. You set the KPIs. You set the service level promises that you want, and then you use a tool like motivity, which pulls real-time data out of your system and really analyzes it. This may be a good time to take a quick break. We're going to be right back after this brief KPI from motivity. We'll be right back after this brief break. Thank you, David, very much. Great to be here, as always. And this week, we have another underwriting-focused key performance indicator, and the KPI is average resubmits per file. This single measurement can not only help lenders develop consistency in underwriting and optimize departmental processes, it can also guide business users to examine contributing tasks and processing that affect this number. KPIs in practice, and you might say by definition, are constantly on display and updated in near real time, making it much easier to pinpoint however many friction points may be combining to produce a given effect, like number of resubmissions, which can also vary by product type, another aspect that the KPI can uncover, demonstrating once again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. Appreciate that. That's John Maynell of, uh, that gets, records the KPI or the Key Performance Indicator of the Week, and we really appreciate it. John is with Motivity Solution. He's Vice President of Client Services. What a great group of folks. What an amazing product. I am so sold on this. Let's talk in Strategy 3. The final things I want to wrap up are what are the benefits of Strategy 3. First of all, when it comes to service levels, it's going to cut delays out of it's going to cut days out of the process and a lot of the delays. It's going to become, a, you're going to create, number two, a consistent replicable service pro levels as a result of promises that they make. So consistency starts coming to your service levels. And then everyone is on the same page because everyone understands the process end to end. So this is amazing to me how many companies do not explain end to end how to do their business. And so when you have an originator that understands the cause and effect, of, and it all starts at origination, folks, if it's not done right there, it trickles all the way through the whole process. And when you can look at a process map that explains that and outlines that, how powerful that is. The, th the fourth thing that I use as a, one of the reasons, the benefits of it, is a commitment to quality. It really goes up. When you involve people, it really helps people understand and get a sense of the commitment that this company has towards quality. The second uh, benefit that comes as a result of this process efficiency process, and this can take months to do. I mean, uh, if it's real well done, it's an ongoing thing, never really stops. First of all, it lifts employee morale because it, they are feel valued. Your employees, your staff become valued because they are become a part of the process of reengineering your business. And how many businesses really go all the way down? I think what's one of the quotes that Keith made is, it's our staff within that are working in these functions are so much better equipped to be able to come and bring me process reengineering ideas and exploring why that is. And it really lifts morale. Their input is being heard. That's the second thing that relates to how it lifts morale. The third thing is they overall understand what they do and how it contributes to all the processes up and down the whole thing. 
the whole process, the entire process of your company. Aids in recruiting and training. This is an un, one of those areas we discovered after we started doing this. When you can bring someone that you're recruiting into the company or you're training once you have recruited and brought them in, you can explain end-to-end your whole over process, overall process really helps and explains the reason why you do what you do and also gives you insights. The number of companies that have this mapped out are so few. This will really aid you in your recruiting. Also, news hires. It brings them up to speed faster with less drag on the existing staff. You know, oftentimes in the mortgage industry, we wait too long to hire people. And when we do, they're, we're snowed under. And so what does a new person need? They need help to get started. Well, when you have a process map out there, they're going to be less drag on your existing staff because they're going to be able to go back to the tools you've created through this. And I think one of the benefits, the final benefit that comes from on a morale basis is it reduces turnover. When you have a purpose-driven process, well-mapped-out process, you're going to see less turnover in your company because you're creating a better atmosphere in which you can work. It becomes more TGIM. Thank God it's Monday. I want to get into work versus a TGIF. I can't wait to get out of this place because it's driving me crazy. Yeah, there will always be TGIFs. I mean, we enjoy our private time, our holidays, which we're – I'll be doing here and joining you guys doing in just a minute. The third benefit of doing this process reengineering is really comes to cost improvements, better controls on costs to produce a loan. We've actually seen costs drop when you make the investment. It's a lot of money. Time is money, and there's a lot of time that goes into investing into this. But once you do this, you're going to find you're going to have better controls not only on the overall processes, but on the cost of how to produce a loan. It becomes very measurable. We tie in the financial modeling with these processes. Uh, identifies the cost of wasted cycles to, do outside, to go when working outside of your agreed-upon process. In other words, if you go outside the process, there's a certain cost that comes to this, and you're able to measure that as a result of that. Then finally, key performance indicators result in quantifiable timeframes to which you can assign dollar values and tie it all back to your financial forecast. So when you do this, the cost improvements, when you really measure this, it's a really astounding what it can come back. So it helps service levels, it lifts morale, and it overall begins to control costs. The third strategy, and looking at the clock, I cannot believe we only have 10 minutes left in this podcast for this week. Um, the third thing is really a strategy of embracing of the mobile revolution. I had uh, Peter Froberg on the podcast here again uh, a little over a month ago. Again, the time frames, i got to write these down. It seems like just yesterday. Uh, in a recent podcast, he talked about digital disruption and what's coming. I think the third strategy is you must embrace mobile revolution, the mobile revolution that is underway. Uh, you know, Quicken Mortgage is out there with Rocket Mortgage, uh, their Rocket app that they have. There's a lot of different companies that are coming forth with apps that are very innovative that really operate at a mobile level. And it is happening. I, I, I go back to when you're thinking about the Peter Froberg uh, interview, one of the the quotes that came out of that that haunts me, that I hope haunts all business owners and executive managers out there, and it's the quote from Nokia's CEO, Stefan Elop. He said, we didn't do anything wrong, but somehow we lost. Think about those words. We didn't do anything wrong, but somehow we lost. Well, there's some denial in there because he says we didn't do anything wrong. Well, if you didn't do anything wrong, why did you lose? There's got to be a cause and effect that's there. Their failure was they failed to recognize how fast the world was changing, and they failed to keep up. And it really, it ultimately was Nokia failed to innovate. If you recall, Nokia 
owned the market. If you look at the old studies, in fact, Microsoft ended up buying them because they were the leader at that point. But Microsoft, like many institutions, buy late in the cycle. That was a bad. That was a bad move. That was a bad decision to acquire that company. You got Microsoft in the mobile division, but how well has that phone done overall? It really hasn't done as nearly as well from a market share standpoint. When you look at what the Google phones have done, Androids, and then of course the the strong grip of which Apple has. And there's Apple lovers, which I am, and Apple haters, so we won't go there. It's like politics and religion. You just don't go into the Apple and that whole realm. But when you look at what is happening and what happened specifically at Nokia, it was a failure to innovate. And when you fail to innovate, you're going to be have the risk of absolutely losing, losing market share. There is a shift that is taking place. And if you study how millennials go about the way they're doing their business, it will really shock you. And it is they they're doing everything. When you look at the websites that are available from looking for us and product discovery, what home do we want to buy? Then they're doing so much more research and I'm not sure that people are grasping the full impact of that. We're seeing an increasing number of millennials. In fact, I was riding on the airplane, and uh, before we, uh, it was a, I was sitting next to a couple. I was along the window, and they were the husband had the aisle seat, and the wife was sitting right next to me, and they were uh, sat down, very friendly, outgoing, and they were looking at an iPad and an iPhone. They were looking to buy a home in the particular city I was just flying out of, and. Uh, they were looking at all the up there. I said, oh, you're working with a realtor? And, and I said, I've been in the real estate business. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And very, very much millennials, very much coming into the market. And I go, yeah, we've been waiting to come into the market, but we really see this is the opportunity before the appreciation gets away from us. We both have solid jobs. We are managing our student loan debt. And she had just paid off her student loan debt or a family member had. And the employer that hired him had a program that recruited him in. They're paying his student loan debt. So that brought, that's an interesting recruiting tool, by the way, pay towards their, some of the compensation goes towards paying the, the student loan debt. If they're a strong enough employee, not a bad strategy. A little side note, may have been worth a podcast right there. But anyway, um, what they said is we're out looking to buy a home. I said, oh, you're working with a realtor? Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to go out and look at this. We're going to totally discover it. And he smiled and he says, uh, "Do you?" and I told him I have a radio podcast. I'm doing this thing. And he, he smiled real big. He says, well, then you probably know the effect of how we millennials are going to go about it is drastically different than your generation uh, goes about it. And uh, and there's no question. We used to establish a relationship with a realtor, have them drive us around, show us homes, make us aware of the communities and what's available in the community. That can all be done now via mobile app. You can tour homes. You can get ideas. You can also bring that data in and start applying for mortgage loans, start doing some pre-qualifications. And that's not even getting to the point where you have to get an LE out. You do not, I mean, the steps you can do up to that is a really amazing, and the companies that are innovating in this area are the ones that are going to succeed and really do it and be successful, really do what is necessary to capture the millennial. And I believe that, you know, I happen to think Quicken Mortgage, Bill Emerson, and uh, the team there is just doing great. Dan Gilbert, uh, those guys really have an idea of where the market's going. They understand consumer direct, and they're there. Now, many say, well, that's app is enough to where it needs to be well you know what where is yours at so don't be throwing criticism unless you have one that's better the fact that they've spent the amount of money they've created an inertia they're creating an awareness you have to be up to date on this folks that is really uh 
critical is to understand that. So how are you representing yourself? What are you doing? What's an interesting thing? Another thing is the third What's the second most used? This is something I didn't intend to go into, but it relates to the mobile revolution that's going on. What is the second search engine, most used search engine? Everyone knows Google is the number one search engine, and it's not Bing. It's not that Microsoft has figured out that. Bing has been, a, for the most part, a abysmal failure uh, compared to what they had projected and had hoped it to be. It's, it's doing all right. Who knows where that'll end up? But without the, the gold standard, when it comes to doing searches, you say, "Have you Googled that?" It's like Kleenex. It be, has become the definition of what um, internet search is all about: is Have you Googled that? So, um, what you the second search engine is not Google; it's YouTube. And you look at the amount of videos that are being uploaded. We've done a podcast on that. I think we touched on briefly on that with Peter Froberg during his podcast, Digital Disruption. Go back and listen to that podcast. What's really interesting is the amount of disruption that's happening as a result of just YouTube videos that are out there. I'm thinking of one particular company, and an increasing number of companies are starting to turn to that, but far fewer than should be. The amount of content that's out there on the YouTube channel needs to go up dramatically. If you're not creating content that is on your website or that your loan officers can send out or that can be discovered that helps consumers work through that process, you are missing a major boat. So the mobile revolution is alive and well. It is uh, four minutes until the end of the podcast. I cannot believe we're already there. Um, Very exciting to be here with you. Three strategies that I believe need to work. When you look at people, you look at process, and you look at the product and how we move our product, how we sell the product, it's really shifting, and it's shifting to a mobile strategy. And it's really – there's another thing that you're going to hear me talking about if you come to the seminar. I also talk about uh, recognizing the the four personality types that are out there uh, that we pay close attention to. It's uh, melancholic, sanguine, choleric, and phlegmatic. You know, the sanguines are the salespeople, the cholerics are the management, the command and control types, the phlegmatics are typically your accountant types, the melancholies are the ones that are the bleeding heart, more of the social type worker, though we have a place, we have HR, that's what I always put the melancholics in, not always, uh, I don't mean to pigeonhole anyone, but these are understanding these, and then understanding where your people are, it's a whole other podcast, I'll do, I'll cover those two areas, probably on the 4th of July podcast when everyone's taking a break, I'll probably cover it on that area. It's good to be with you. Appreciate you being here and telling others about our podcast next week. We're going to have, really excited about next week's program, Bill or William Isaac will be here with us, uh, former head of FDIC. And there's some interesting things developing as it relates to patterns. I heard him speak at the uh, American Bankers Association uh, session. He was a keynote speaker there. Very interesting content. Very excited to have him on the podcast next week. He will be uh, very informative. We're going to be looking backwards to look forwards is an expression I use. We're looking backward over time to learn what we learn. Again, again, what we fail to learn from history, we're doomed to repeat. So there's some interesting things that are going on, especially as we head into, into this election season. It's good to have you with us. Appreciate you so much for being here and telling others about the podcast. It's very important that you contact and communicate with us. We love hearing from you. Just let us know. We usually get it when we're traveling through a conference. Everyone's supposed to be a scientist. Listen to your podcast. Great. Real great. And, uh, but we appreciate you being here with us. Tell others about it. Give us an email. You can email me at david at tms-advisors.com tms-advisors.com Forward to hearing from you. We'll have our regular 
programming will return next Monday at uh, this time. And look forward to being here with you. Have a great weekend and uh, enjoy Memorial Day. Again, thank you, Beth, for all that you do to have served our Talk to you soon. Have a great week, everybody. This has been Lincoln on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening.